Thank you, Richard. Well, terrific to see you all. Uh, it's the start of a new season. It's actually the first time I've preached in 10 weeks. I think it's the longest break I've had from preaching here uh, since, well, since I had a sabbatical seven years ago. Uh, so I'm not sure if I can remember how to do it, and we'll see how it goes. But today is a kind of a fresh start. First Sunday in September always feels like a, well, it is literally obviously a back-to-school moment for so many tomorrow. And as is traditional, after a lousy August it's going to be roasting sunshine this week, just as the kids go back to school. It sort of seems so unfair, doesn't it? Right, we are starting a new series today called uh, Seven Churches. We're going to be looking at the seven churches in the book of Revelation. And I'm going to be teaching from that. Uh, for those of you who are new here, just to explain as well, we, uh, we have two congregations. We have another congregation in Meet a mile or so down the road on Ashley Road. So once I finish speaking here, I shall be leaving the premises to go and speak down there. So if you're new and you're wondering why the speaker suddenly vanished, it's because I've gone down to speak at our other congregation. So we're going to be spending seven weeks looking at these seven churches in the book of Revelation. And then after that, we're planning to teach through the whole of the Old Testament uh, between October and July next year. So we felt people struggle to read and understand the Old Testament, but it's so understand so important for us to understand the whole Christian message. So we're planning to spend a long time 30 Sundays teaching through the Old Testament, so we'll, we'll get to that. But first, we're in these seven churches in Revelation. And uh, we've decided to teach on this because of how this is a regathering, a restarting moment for us. September is always like that, but especially so this year, after all we've been through the last 18 months. It really does feel like this is a moment for us to regroup, regather, refocus on what's important to us, and get going again in the things that the Lord has called us to. And as we do that, there are many ways, many things for which I feel we can have a sense of commendation. There are many signs of grace, of God's grace at work amongst us. Uh, end of last week, the elders and uh, some of the wider team were away together for a couple of days, and, and Nathaniel Hobby got us to, uh, just in a couple of minutes, on post-it notes, write out signs of God's grace to us over the last 18 months, and we stuck them up on a board. And uh, we had so many, kind of, we I mean, could have written so many more if he'd given us more time, just signs of God's grace to us, how God has kept us, blessed us, preserved us, favoured us over this season. So there's a commendation to us at this, as we start again. There's also a challenge to us that we really do need to get the wheels of church life turning again. We need to be clear about what the church is and what we're called to. And so we are looking in this next few weeks, like through September, as we teach this series, for those of you who are church members to, again, kind of clarify your commitment and step up in that. And we're looking for those who've kind of found your way amongst us over the past 18 months to uh, really identify and say, yeah, I'm here. I want to commit. I want to be in. While we were away together, uh, we felt the Lord speaking to us through a couple of pictures around imagery uh, of Paul Harbour. Uh, Vicky had a, a picture of um, uh, kind of us being in a dry dock and the Lord working on, on the vessels. We've been in this dry dock season. And I was, I was reminded of a, a picture that was actually very significant for Grace and I when we first moved down here well, 14 years ago. Of uh, Somebody had a, a picture of a, a big lake with lots of little boats being pushed out, kind of ministries and initiatives being launched. And when we came and saw the harbour with all its little boats, it was like, ah, oh, here's the picture. And the sense that, again, God wants us to be creative and take initiative in pushing out little boats having a go at things and trying things and see what might happen. And also a sense that the Lord wants to 
do some bigger things amongst us. One of the things that's happened in Pearl Harbor the last couple of years is that some bigger boats have come in. They've enlarged the shipping channel. The biggest ever boat two years came in the Boudicca, 205 meters long, much bigger than they thought the harbor could take. But the harbor is capable now of taking massive vessels like that. And as we were praying and seeking the Lord together, we felt there was a sense of the Lord wanting to do some big things amongst us as well. Uh, One of those, of course, is around our plans for the building here. Uh, This Thursday, we have interviews with the two contractors who we think are the best-placed contractors for the work we want to do here. So I'd ask you to pray for us this Thursday. It's a key moment. Thursday, 12 noon through to about 4 o'clock, we'll be interviewing those two contractors and uh, expect then over the next few weeks to be bringing more information and more challenge in terms of what we do and where we go. There's going to be some big asks we're going to make of one another as we move forward with our building plans. So Lord, I pray for us. I pray as we start this new season, as we get into this new series, Lord, as we look to regroup, regather, recommit, as we look for fresh initiatives of what you do amongst us and great big uh, things you might call us to as well, I pray that we'd know your help, your sufficiency, your grace, and Lord, we would be faithful as you are faithful to us. Amen. Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. The context of what we're going to be looking at and of these letters in the book of Revelation is a person, John. And John introduces himself here, I, John. And church tradition would teach us that the vision of Revelation came to John, the apostle, the disciple, the beloved disciple, the one who leaned against Jesus at the Last Supper. And John now is an old man, but still faithfully pursuing Christ Jesus. And he describes himself as a brother and companion, or a brother and partner with those to whom this vision is being sent in the seven churches. There's a sense of gospel partnership and family here. And one of the things that we believe is that when we come into relationship with Jesus, we are transformed from being just individuals doing life our own way, pursuing our own thing, to those who are members of the family. We become partners, companions to one another, partners in the gospel with each other, brothers and sisters in the family of God. And John here kind of gives a status report. There's a a status report in terms of his physical location and also a spiritual status report. Physically, John is in exile. He's on the Isle of Patmos, and he says this is because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He's been exiled to this place uh, because of what he's been teaching about the Lord. And there's also a spiritual status update which is that his life and the Christian life involves partnering. We partner in suffering, the kingdom, and patient endurance. And he says uh, that life in Christ involves all these things. Life in Christ involves suffering, the kingdom, 
and patience endurance. And we can see that. Sometimes we can see examples of suffering for Christians which are just extreme. There's been some horrendous reports the past couple of weeks about the small number of Christians in Afghanistan and what's been happening to them of basically everything being taken from them and just heartbreaking things about families with teenage daughters and their daughters being taken and forced into so-called marriage with Taliban fighters. Sometimes the suffering that Christians experience is intense and horrific. Sometimes it's the stuff which is normal but still is tough. All those kids going back to school tomorrow to be a faithful witness for Christ in school. It's not easy. It's hard. And now aggressively secular society. It's tough to be faithful to Christ in school. Those of you going back to school, starting back at university in the next days or weeks, it's hard. I understand that. But the Christian life also involves an experience of the kingdom. We live in the end times. Christ is risen and Christ is coming again. And so in this point in history, we experience the kingdom of God breaking in. We experience that in terms of knowing who we are as the people of God, as his family, and seeing evidences of God's grace amongst us, knowing his provision, knowing his work, seeing evidence of his power being displayed through his people, the church. And we do that with patient endurance. The Christian life is a pilgrimage. It's patient endurance. It's Keeping going for the long haul. It's not just burning out. It's trusting Jesus and serving him every day that he gives us. Life isn't always rosy. Sometimes life is hard. And for many people, especially this last 18 months, has been difficult. There's been a call to patient endurance. And that's what we're always called to as Christians. And John says that these things are ours in Jesus. They're ours in Jesus. They belong to us. Suffering, kingdom, patient endurance are ours in Jesus. They're really the definition of discipleship. We, we share in kingdom rule with Christ Jesus. We already reign with him, but we also experience difficulty and need to display perseverance. And so when we see churches or Christian suffering, that is not a sign that Jesus isn't ruling anymore. No, actually Christ's rule coexists with the suffering of the churches. And so John gives this, gives this spiritual update. This is how it is. I'm in exile on Patmos, and I'm partnering with you in Jesus, in suffering and the kingdom and patient endurance. And then he also tells us what day of the week it is. It's the Lord's Day. It's Sunday. It's Resurrection Day, the first day of the week. And uh, that's not without significance. Sundays matter. So Sunday, and he's in the Lord's presence, seeing this vision and thinking about the people in the churches whom he's been called to serve. Sundays matter. It's good to be here. It's great that you're here this morning, being together, fellowshipping together. The world is difficult. Life is tough. It's hard to be a faithful Christian in the world in which we live. We need to be together. We need to gather on Sundays. It's more important than going to the shops or taking the kids to football or whatever else it might be. In the Lord's Day, John received this vision from the Lord, and he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. And that's a good place to be to have an experience of God's presence, his empowering presence, the Holy Spirit at work amongst us. And he has this vision 
a vision for the seven churches. And uh, here's a little map to show you where they are in modern-day Turkey, uh, kind of spread about 30 to 50 miles apart from one another in this loop. And each of these uh, cities were regional centers, important places kind of commercially, economically. There's also a symbolic significance to these seven churches. Seven is the perfect number, biblically speaking. And these seven churches stand for all churches. So the message that comes to these seven churches actually is a message for every church in every era, in every corner of the world. And the overall picture that we get of what the churches are like is that they're actually not doing too well. There's a lot that the Lord rebukes the churches about, as we'll see. And there's a sense in which that is encouraging. Because as we look at churches in our world, we can often look around and think, man, the the state of the church in our day doesn't always seem very encouraging. There's a lot of things which don't seem quite right with the church of Jesus Christ today. And then we can see what the Lord says to these churches and the things he warns and encourages them in and that reminds us that Jesus never lets his church go. And whatever the state of the church might seem, the Lord will cause his bride to be purified and ready for him. Verse 12, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash round his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid, which actually is the most frequently stated command in the whole of Scripture. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. What John sees here is Jesus, risen, glorified, walking amongst the seven lampstands. And it's an overwhelming and even terrifying picture of Christ that he sees. Now, the book of Revelation is full of symbolism. If you're uh, doing community Bible reading with us at the moment, you'll be reading. You've got the twin joy of reading Ezekiel and Revelation. And uh, some of that can be hard going. Both of those books have a lot of symbolism in them, which can be confusing. You really need to have a... To understand the book of Revelation, you need to understand Old Testament prophecy. You need to understand the historical context in which the vision comes, all kinds of things, and that can be confusing. Uh, earlier in the year, we had a number of Zoom sessions that my uh, illustrious father did for us about the book of Revelation, and those I know were very helpful for many and are still available on our YouTube channel. So if you feel confused by the book of Revelation, check out my dad's sessions on Revelation, and that will help you. The passages we're looking at, this beginning of Revelation, are actually amongst the most straightforward in the book. But what 
John describes here in this vision of Christ is something actually which is essentially indescribable. The risen glorified Christ, this vision of one with this blazing appearance and a sword coming out of his mouth, and it's an, over, an indescribable, Jesus is indescribable. And I think there's something for us, well, there is something for us in this, not to take Jesus lightly. You know, um, visual representations of Christ's usually a bad idea, and they're norm- normally kind of a blue-eyed, blonde-haired, uh, westerner looking very... Um, calm and kind. It's rather different from what John describes here. John was Jesus' closest friend in the time of Christ's ministry on earth. And here he sees the risen Jesus and he falls to the ground as though dead. And Jesus, in this vision, describes himself, who he is. He is the before all and after all, all conquering, death-conquering king. He's the one who holds the keys to death and Hades. He's the one who is in command. And in the madness and the pain of this world, we must remember that Jesus holds the keys. He has authority. He is the master of the house. He's the one who holds the keys. And there is so much in our world which is crazy and confusing and deeply distressing. And we need to have a sense of the overwhelming majesty, beauty, glory, power, authority of Jesus, the one who holds the keys. And then some of the symbolism or mystery, as it says here, is translated for us. Jesus explains to us what the seven stars and the seven lampstands are. The seven stars are the angels of the churches. The lampstands are the churches. And we see here in this, as in the beginning of the vision here, how much... Local churches matter to Jesus. These seven churches, these seven cities, represented by these lampstands amongst which Christ is walking, and seven angels who some, in some way oversee and minister to the churches. And so we have this sense that Jesus cares about local churches. Jesus cares about the church in Ephesus, and he cares about the church in Laodicea, and he cares about the church in Smyrna, and he cares about the church in Paul. Jesus cares about local churches. And Jesus holds the stars, the angels, like he holds the keys. He has authority, and we therefore have security. So let's see what Jesus says to the first of these churches. To the angel of the church in Ephesus writes, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent. And do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who is victorious. I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. Church in Ephesus 
comes first in this list of seven churches. It was a very notable church in a very important city. And the Lord speaks and says, write to the angel of the church. And these angels are spiritual representatives. And we must remember the spiritual dimension of life. We already live in the spiritual dimension. And our life on earth needs to be modeled on heavenly realities. Think about how Jesus taught us to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As believers, as followers of Christ, we are somehow to live in a heavenly dimension on earth. We inhabit a spiritual realm as well as this physical one. And the believers in Ephesus had seen that in power. We read in Acts chapter 19 about how the gospel broke into the city of Ephesus. And there was a remarkable demonstration of the kingdom of God entering, transformed people's lives, transformed the whole city, caused absolute chaos in terms of how the city operated. And that account of what the Lord did in Ephesus takes up a big chunk of the story in the book of Acts. It's an amazing story. And then, of course, we also have the letter to the Ephesians, which the Apostle Paul wrote. We spent 10 weeks teaching through that at the beginning of this year. And the Apostle John spent much of his ministry in Ephesus as well. So this church, this Ephesian church, is so central to the whole Christian story. To understand who we are, what Christ has done, what Christ is doing, we really need to know something about the church in Ephesus. And Ephesus was an important city. It was an important city politically and culturally and commercially. So what would the Lord speak to a church as famous as this in a city as significant as this? And what the Lord speaks is a commendation and a rebuke and then a promise. First, he commends them for their diligence. They've worked hard, and they have endured. And being a follower of Christ in Ephesus is not easy. In that account of Acts, we see what happens as people respond to the gospel and the impact that makes in the town. That, that provokes opposition, which ends up in a riot and the Christians being threatened. There's spiritual and economic and political opposition against the church in the city of Ephesus. They had to know what patient endurance was if they were going to survive because they were under all kinds of pressure. And they must have often felt, to use a modern phrase, that they were on the wrong side of history. Because everything that they lived for and believed was counter to what their city lived and believed. There's a lesson for us in that. And despite all that, they persevered in the truth. The last time the Apostle Paul met with the Ephesian elders, we're told in Acts 20, verse 29, he warned them. He said, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. The Apostle Paul anticipated false teachers and dangerous people coming into the church and bringing division and disruption to that church. And then what we read here, what the Lord tells us here in Revelation, is that they have resisted that. Church in Ephesus has resisted those wolves who would have come amongst them. They haven't allowed false apostles to come in and knock them off track. And they've resisted the Nicolaitans. And we think the Nicolaitans were a kind of heretical group who wanted to kind of be Christians, but also maintain pagan practices of idolatry and immorality and, and would have corrupted the whole church. And, and the Lord says, you, you, you've, re you've rejected their practices too. You've done well. And 
They've kept their energy levels up. The Lord says that they haven't grown weary. And that's remarkable. They haven't grown weary even as they've had to fight so many battles. This is impressive stuff. It's, it's easy to get weary in the face of opposition, in the face of difficulty. And I think, again, over the last 18 months, probably many of us at times have felt weary because life has felt so difficult. And the Lord says to this church, well done, you haven't grown weary in the face of all the difficulty you've experienced. There's so many signs of grace. If, if they were going to get the post-it notes out and stick them on the wall, they'd have had hundreds and hundreds of post-it notes of signs of God's grace amongst them, things for which they could experience commendation. This is good. But then comes the rebuke. And the Lord says, I have this against you. You've abandoned your first love. And it seems that they were doing the stuff, going through the motions, but their hearts had grown cold. That this was a church which was correct in its doctrine, in its teaching, but was cold-hearted now in its attitude towards Christ. And it might be that even as they had had to kind of fight so many battles in order to persevere and stay true to the faith, that in doing that, they'd become a legalistic, and that can happen. You can, in a commitment to true doctrine and theology, it's easy to actually end up cold-hearted because it becomes all about the doctrine rather than about the one the doctrine is meant to be about. And maybe they were no longer witnessing, lampstanding to the world as they should have been. And that's dangerous. In Acts 19, we read about how the whole province of Asia heard about Jesus because of what was happening in the city of Ephesus. And it seems that is no longer going on. And so the Lord says to them, consider how far you have fallen. So much to commend here in this church, but consider how far you have fallen. You've done so well, but you've become so cold. And then Jesus warns them that if they don't change, their lampstand will be taken Away, I'll come to you. Jesus assesses his church. And we have to remember that churches, local churches, are his church. His church in Ephesus is, in the end, not the Apostle Paul's, not the Apostle John's, not the elders of the church in Ephesus. In the end, it's Jesus' church. And he'll make the assessment of it. And we need to remember that's true for us as well. Gateway Church is his church. And there's a very serious warning here that if a church stops doing what a lampstand is meant to do. Shine the light of Christ, witness to Christ in the world. There's no reason for that church to continue. No local church has a God-given right to permanent existence. The church of Jesus Christ will endure through all the ages, but there's no reason why individual local churches should or do. And you can see this all around. You can see this happening again and again, churches which become cold-hearted. And you can kind of track the timeline. Churches where the truth is still taught and at least paid lip service to, but where there's no real love or passion for the Lord. And then that truth teaching actually does become nothing more than paying lip service to. And the food bank and the coffee mornings become more, more, more important than actually really loving Christ. And in the end, and the lights are kept on simply by the scouts and the dance club putting some money in each week. And then the church dies. 
And we can all think of examples of churches around here, we know, which have gone through that sequence. And of course, the warning is, that could happen to us. There's no God-given reason why Gateway Church will exist forever. If our love for Jesus grows cold, if we stop lampstanding, there's no reason for us to continue to exist. And so there's a real warning to us here in this, as well as the real commendation that we see. There's a danger. We can, we can turn up, we can do the stuff, we can serve, we can give, but if we become cold-hearted, the Lord will take the lampstand away. I recognize the danger of this myself. I'm paid to be a minister in this church. It's very easy for someone in my position to become a professional Christian. Just do it because that's what you're doing. It's the job. So dangerous. Each of us, whether it's me who's paid to do this, or you who do it because you love Christ, each of us needs to keep our hearts hot for the Lord. This next season, as a church together, there's going to be a lot of work to do, and we're going to have to show real perseverance as we do it, and we really need to keep fighting for the truth. We live in a culture where fighting for the truth is going to become harder and harder, and where fighting for the truth will mean that we do experience more and more opposition. It's going to be some pain that we face in the coming years if we're going to hold faithfully to the truth, as a church in Ephesus did. There are no shortage in our world of wicked people and false apostles and Nicolaitans. No shortage. But our holding to the truth needs to come from warm hearts, hearts in love with Jesus. And so the really key thing for us in this next season, apart from all the stuff we want to do, and the truth we want to proclaim. The key thing for us might be just making sure that our hearts are warm for Jesus, that we really are in love with him, that we haven't abandoned our first love, that we haven't fallen, but that we still love Christ as we should. There's a commendation here, there's a rebuke, and then finally there's a promise. Keep going, the Lord says, and you'll eat from the tree of life. Life is what awaits God's victorious people. Get to the end of the book of Revelation and we see a picture of Eden restored and the tree of life with its leaves as a healing for the nations. And you can't really understand the Bible story unless you understand something about the trees. It begins with the tree of rebellion in Eden where Adam and Eve rejected God and chose their own selfish way. And then it ends with the tree of life. When God's people are victorious in his presence, experiencing full peace and completion with him. And that is all reconciled by the tree of the cross, by which the tree of rebellion was cast down and the tree of life sprung into growth. And Jesus says, persist, love, and you will be victorious and you will eat from the tree of life. You will fully participate in the shalom of God. What does victory look like? It looks like love. It looks like knowing the love of Jesus and loving him. And so in this season, as we get going again, September 2021, Gateway Church, let's keep persevering in the things that God has called us to. Let's push out some small boats and let's anticipate some giant ones. And let's keep delighting in the Lord. We wouldn't fall from our first love. 
that we keep worshipping and celebrating him and the light from this place would shine in a world which so needs to see it. Lord, I pray it for us. I pray that as we get going again, this new church year, I pray as we've come out of the past 18 months, all its confusion and challenges, I pray, Lord God, that we would be people who are passionate for you. That, yes, we would... Uh, Delight in the Lord, and we would know your grace and your mercy and your love in this place. And that, Jesus, by your mercy, there would be more things which we can kind of stick on the board, post-it, signs of your grace amongst us, signs of the Lord's provision, things we've managed to get started, ministries being uh, initiated, great things achieved because you are faithful and you empower and equip your people. And I pray all that will come from a heart of love for you, O God. Ask it for our town. Ask it for our nation. Pray, Jesus, that lampstands wouldn't be removed, but instead in our day we'd see church after church burning with passion for you and displaying your lights in our worlds. Let it be true for us. Let it be true in our nation, we ask King Jesus. Amen.